Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, paramedics and emergency services are concerned afterward that the province is looking at cutting 59 ambulance services down to only 10. City Council today at GIC will discuss the issues revolving around the Red Hill Valley Parkway inquest and dozens of teachers at the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board that were working as consultants and specialists found out earlier this week that their jobs will no longer exist. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Some shocking news, frankly, uh, that we got yesterday. Paramedics and emergency services are concerned after word that the province is looking at cutting 59 ambulance services down to 10. Uh, Yeah, I don't remember them talking about this during the campaign. I don't remember them talking about this over the last six months. But a a leaked memo that somebody got eyes on, and now the government is not denying it. So uh, what are the implications? Well, let's uh, bring Mario Pastorero into the conversation, the president of OPSU Local uh, for this area, uh, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Mario, how are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm fine. How are you? Well, I, I guess you you could be better. I, I, this news here is rather distressing, isn't it? It sure is. I mean, the bomb dropped Monday evening when we became aware of this leaked memo and what the intentions of the government actually were. Since then, there's been a lack of information, a lack of details, a lack of logistics, and it's creating confusion and chaos for our paramedics our community and obviously our city councillors as well. Let me do some math here for a second, uh, because one of the things that shocked me among, among many about this, Mario, was the municipalities. This was downloaded to the municipalities by the Harris government. We all know that. And I, I was on city council at those times, and I noticed how problematic that was and how distressing it was. Uh, subsequent governments have, have kind of divvied it up a little bit, but the, but the municipalities, in this case Hamilton, still pay the lion's share of, of uh, ambulance costs. So you know, is the province going to just simply say you don't have to do that anymore? Are we going to continue to pay but not have any say in how this is going to be done? Well, those are the open questions, and, and, yeah. and you're correct. You remember 1998-1999 when I and my executive came to visit you and other city councillors, when Mike Harris, and at that time he was also known as Mike the Knife, if you recall, yep. he downloaded the provision of ambulance services to the municipality. And at that time, the municipality had three options at its disposal. It could have kept the service status quo. It could have put out a request for proposal or it could have taken the service in-house, which it did based on the evidence. That was the best decision that occurred at that time. So since then, there's been various commentary from different governments, but the, the fact that this government has moved with ferocity and aggression in other areas leads us to believe that there's a possi- possibility that this is just a veiled plan to merge and then privatize again. Don't have that information, unfortunately, the lack of consultation, in spite of the government's pat taglines, to the contrary, have created this, this fear and chaos that uh, reigns right now. We don't have all of the information. But what they say is not what they do. They have not consulted, and they have not, and this will not improve care and reduce duplication. These are taglines that they're using to convince the community and the public that perhaps changing or amalgamating the ambulance service is going to result in increased savings to the taxpayers. Don't see it. This is a classic case of shoot first, aim later. There's no plan, there's no detail, and we're all confused as to what the next next play is, Bill. Well, the problem I've got with a number of these decisions, and this is the latest one in this in this list now, Mario, is it seems as if the, the mandate and, and the, the, the end game here that the, this government is playing is, is not can we make this service more efficient, uh, it's how can we make it cheaper. And, and, uh, and there, I'm sorry, there's a disconnect there. If you're going to get cheaper, you get what you pay for in, in life and certainly in government services. And if they think that they're going to just save a ton of money here, you know that's going to mean service reductions. It has to. It, it either has to result in service reduction or moving this, this whole model to the private sector where you're just shifting dollars and profit motive becomes the bottom line. Money will be taken out of the system. It will go into the pockets of private operators. Been there, done that, did not work, got away from it. But, you know, the government is purporting to improve care and reduce duplication. We don't have a duplication problem. We have a demand problem, and it's driven by demographics and an aging population who use our service three times more often than the non-elderly. Unless he's got a plan to stop people from aging, merging ambulance service is not the answer. 
Well, I, I, again, I don't understand why has, there hasn't been any consultation. Uh, the, the ministry did respond. I know you know this, Mary. I just want to pass it on to our listeners. Uh, the Ministry of Health confirmed on Tuesday that, yes, they are considering this. They don't have any details on it. But here's the quote. No paramedic in Ontario will lose their job, a spokesman said. Now, let me ask you something. Later on in the show today, uh, we're going to be talking with Harvey Bischoff, who's the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. And the reason we're bringing Harvey back on is because the Ford government made that promise, too, with their education reform and said, don't worry, nobody's going to lose their job. Thousands of teachers at borders right across the province have now received notices that said you're probably not going to be working in September. So how do you, how do you reconcile what they're saying with what they're doing? Well, there's a trust problem, obviously, Bill. What they say is not what they do. You know, they have well-rehearsed taglines that don't really hold up. You know, they're going to increase service while saving taxpayers' money. They will consult to see if they can deliver care more efficiently. We don't have an organizational integration problem. We have a capacity problem within our hospitals. It's driven by a lack of long-term care and community resources. It puts pressure on the emergency departments and our service, and it results in highway mess. The province owns this, owns this problem. Emerging ambulance services is not the answer unless they have a different agenda. There's a lack of trust here. What they say is not what they do. Well, and we have to understand and try to find out anyway how this is going to roll out. I mean, this is now what the government is, is, they didn't talk about this, but now that this is out, of course, now they're trying to backtrack a little bit and say, oh, no, this was all part of this uh, this healthcare reform that we were talking about. Well, they didn't talk about that at the time. Uh, they didn't mention that at all. And and there were enough people concerned about what they did say about health care reform because apparently they're blowing all these boards up like Cancer Care Ontario and everything, and they're going to have this one great big super board that's going to dole out health care for the province. Uh, and I guess that's going to be a more efficient system. They say it is anyway. Um, but that means there's going to be no local input at all. And you and I have talked about this in the past. You can't, if you're sitting in an office in Toronto, you can't dictate how ambulance service should operate effectively in Hamilton or Sudbury or any place else. I mean, there's got to be some local input there. Well, there has to be. I mean, there's, there's so many unknowns here. There's so many open questions. Is there intent to really privatize this? Is it to download it further to municipalities? Is it to upload it? Not really sure. Lack of detail, of course. Lack of information as a result of a lack of consultation has created this, this circumstance. But their initial tagline was that they intend to integrate emergency health services into Ontario's healthcare system. Now, that was the pat line. But never was there any reference to emergency ambulance services from 59 to some arbitrary number being 10. Really don't get how that's going to save money unless this is really a veiled plan to merge and then privatize. Well, which, by the way, that super board has the power to do now, according to the legislation that the uh, the Ford government has introduced. Uh, they, they say they don't have any plans to do it. Then, But my question then is, well, then why is it in the legislation? It, well, they, you know, it, it, this are, these are dog whistle calls to their, you know, to their business friends, quite honestly. And I, and I hate to be blunt, but, you know, they, they can decide to do whatever they want to do when they want to do it. They've got a mandate, as it stands now, for this term, and the way he's moved with ferocity, as I, as I said, and vigor in other areas, I think should be a telltale sign of what he's likely to do here. You, know, you predict the future by looking at the past. The very current past has not been in our best interest. It has not been in the best interest of educators and students. And I think this just might be one more area that he decides to move into, potentially privatize, and obviously cut dollars from the system, from the patients, from the paramedics, from the service, and put in the pockets of others. And that's, that's concerning. Mary, some of the stuff you and I have talked about over the years, uh, some of the challenges facing this city when it comes to ambulance service, uh, and I think finally City Council, after a little bit of prodding from, from myself and certainly from you and, 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 and your executive, I, I think they grasp the problem now that there's a staffing problem, uh, there's, there's a, 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 a vehicle problem, you don't have enough ambulances on the road, you don't have enough staff for those. Uh, that's part of the problem. Then, of course, as you mentioned, there's the hospital problem themselves, which the, the, the past government tried to throw money at, and it hasn't really worked effectively. Uh, if they decide that they're going to merge these and go on down to 10, are you confident in any way, shape, or form that you're going to be able to address some of the issues that have been ongoing for the last eight, eight or 10 years here? Absolutely. Our ability to reach and touch and communicate with our city councillors will be a, a thing of the past. It will fall under one large agency, and I'm just basing that on what I hear. I don't even know what this agency is going to look like, what their mandate will be. But I can probably surmise, based on what I've seen thus far, it will not be positive. 
that will not be in the best interest of the patients, the service, and the community. We've got concerns here. And, and the way they've moved on this and the sneakiness within which they've actually pursued this without even announcing it within their budget document is a concern. And we have to challenge them as aggressively as we can. The problem here is we're not sure what they're going to do other than making some change and merging the number of ambulance services into an arbitrary number. We're not really sure what's next. Again, there's a lot of concerns because of the lack of information. We need more information, and hopefully we can attack the issue. Well, then you can have a fact-based presentation to try to work with this. But right now, you don't know where you're supposed to go. Do you go back to city council? Maybe not. That may not be their jurisdiction anymore. Uh, do you go to Queen's Park? Good luck with that. You'll probably be one of about how many thousands that are going to be going there saying the same thing, that, hey, it's not working for our community. Uh, this this could be problematic. I mean, listen... <laughs> This is, let's throw the, the big word out there that nobody wants to talk about. This is the same as amalgamation. That's what they did back in, at the turn of the century. Did this to the city of Hamilton, of course. Said it was going to save millions of dollars. And how'd that work out? And, and, you know, so please show me where what they're proposing to do is going to make for a more efficient and, and a more cost-effective system. Well, show us, and also show us what problem you're trying to solve. Because as I stated, we have a demand problem. And it's driven by our demographics and aging population, all the data supports, especially in Hamilton. We have a larger percentage of the elderly than other comparable communities. Now, again, unless you've got a plan to stop people from aging, I don't see how, you know, a super agency is going to deal with the increased call volume. There's a demand there. We just need the resources to meet the demand. We've got some concerns about how they're approaching it, but I think what's evident in the past, in the recent past, they haven't been consistent with what they say it's what they do and what they do is much different than what they say we've got some concerns here but what is unique and i, I guess advantageous at this point is both the unions frontline workers senior management amo association of municipalities of ontario and our city councillors seem to be on the same page so hopefully we can work in tandem to address this issue bring some clarity uh, perhaps challenge some of the assertions challenge some of the decisions that perhaps haven't been made and they want to make and hopefully we can arrive at, at some place where we have as close as possible to what we enjoy right now. This is the best model for our community. It's the best model for our taxpayers. It's the best model for our paramedics, Bill. Well, it is, and, and it's not perfect, obviously. And, and you brought those, those imperfections to everybody's attention uh, as they have arisen. And the cities, I guess, doing what they can. I mean, they'd, I'm sure they'd love to be able to do more, but you know, there's a concern here of finances, obviously. Uh, but I don't see that any of that stuff that you talked about is going to get addressed by a wide body, a big provincial body. Uh, I mean, if, if they were to do this, I mean, just let's get into the hypothetical for a second. Uh, they knock this down to just 10 as opposed to the existing structure that you've got right now. Uh, who's in charge? Uh, you know, where's where's the head office? I mean, who's calling the shots? Is somebody from, from, from Oakville going to be calling the shots as to how ambulance service is supposed to work here in Hamilton? I mean, it just se- it seems bizarre. It seems bizarre. It's not workable. But perhaps they don't want it to work. Perhaps this is a way for them not to have it work, and they can then evolve to perhaps a different plan. I mean, yes, our, our existing model has challenges, and it's based on resources, and some of those challenges are as a result of the provincial government not appropriately funding hospitals, long-term care beds, which puts pressure on the ambulance service. But at least we have a forum to bring our issues to city council, through the budget process, there's enhancements. I'm happy to say there's an enhancement coming forth uh, over the next uh, actually couple of weeks. We're getting an additional vehicle. That's good news. But there's a process. We put forth the information, put forth the data, council listens, and decisions are made. That's acceptable. But they're t- connected to the community. They're connected to the patients. They're connected to the service. This is all of ours together. You put this in front of an agency somewhere there's going to be a disconnect and the ability for us to communicate and and advocate lobby will be gone this will be decided by ford and his team through some ideology of efficiency through a reduction in the number of ambulance services uh replaced with 10 teams super agencies it's a joke it's a joke. It's, it's nothing but a shell game, and it's intended to take the eye off, eye off the ball and, I believe, move in further into, into privatization. Look at history. That will predict the future. 
I'm concerned, Bill. I saw our paramedics in our service. Well, as I th- the community is too, and as you said, the, the mayor's outraged. I mean, everybody's on the same page here. So I, I know there's probably going to be some more details coming down here. But uh, as to the idea we had yesterday that this was just speculative, now the ministry said, no, this is probably going to move forward. So uh, you and I are going to talk a lot more about this in the future. Mario, thanks so much for this today, though. Thank you for the opportunity, Bill. Have a good day. You too. Mario Posterero, the course president of the uh, Ambulance uh, associate, and this is this is the crazy thing about this. I mean, the paramedics have gone through, you know, a, a lot of hard work here to try to get the message out there about how difficult it is. And city council's on side with them now. So it costs a million dollars. He just mentioned there's a new unit going on the road in a few weeks. Uh, Cost about a million bucks to do that. Do you really think a super body, a provincial body, is going to make that kind of commitment when they've got other places looking for the same kind of money or less money, really? It's, uh, it's strange. We'll continue to follow that story, though, and bring you the details as they, uh, they occur. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Life is a highway. Just You never know what kind of asphalt you're going to get, though. That's the problem. Uh, and that seems to be the problem for Hamilton City Council. Uh, today, later on today, they're going to be meeting and talking about the Red Hill Valley situation. Uh, they've pretty much decided now that they want a judicial review into this thing. Uh, but now they could be a little sticker shock when they find out about how much this is going to cost. Uh, we're told it could be anywhere from seven to eleven million dollars, maybe even more than that. Is it money well spent? Is it something that taxpayers are going to be happy with at the end of the day? Let's uh, bring former Hamilton Mayor Larry Deany into the conversation as he joins us on the program. Morning, Larry. How are you doing today? I'm very well, uh, Bill. Um, good morning. Good morning. Listen, let's, we haven't talked for a while. What, what's your read on how council has handled this whole issue? Well, uh, so let, let's start with, with the basic fact that some people have died on the road, uh, and that is sufficient uh, reason to take this very, very seriously, because there's nothing more important than, uh, than public safety, obviously. Uh, and then let's start uh, as well with the, uh, with the fact that uh, there was a report that uh, said, um, you know, have a look at the asphalt um, in sections of this road, didn't say that there was anything wrong with it, but said there have been higher uh, incidents of, of uh, collisions, so have a look at that asphalt again. And somehow that report wasn't paid attention to, wasn't seen, certainly didn't make its way to the political ears. And so that those two facts uh, mean that council has to take this very, very seriously. However, the, the option that they seem to have chosen for a judicial inquiry will cost Seven to $11 million, maybe more, as you just said. Mm-hmm. And that's money that can be better spent. Essentially, there were very few people who were in charge of the roadway. Um, and, and it's just a question of talking to them and seeing um, what the facts are. And that can be done certainly much more inexpensively than a public inquiry. It just doesn't seem to me to be as complicated as they are making it to get to the facts of what happened. But who would do the who would do the inquiry? Who would do the questioning? You recommend well, city council would actually do it? No, uh, it needs to be a third party, uh, and uh, it needs to have the independence and the, and therefore the credibility that nobody's going to sweep anything under the rug. So there are uh, a number of provincial um, agencies that might fulfill that role. Uh, And there is also an independent auditor that the city hires to look at um, and report on uh, issues such as this. So the combination of both of those, I think, would accomplish the same thing at a far, far less expense than $7 to $11 million. You know, one of the things that council also has to deal with is affordable housing. Uh, the fact that uh, our housing stock, uh, Hamilton housing stock, needs an infusion of cash, and there's always a lament that that money isn't available. Think what seven to eleven million dollars could do to address that issue, and that's just one example. There are others, and I'm not suggesting that that the other isn't important. That's why I started with uh, the fact that a report somehow wasn't made available, and the fact that people have died, and there needs to be some accountability, some explanation on all of that. But it's just the method that's being chosen seems to me um, to be uh, too uh, extravagant, but also unnecessary. But aren't they too far down the road now, Larry? Well, I think they are. I think the die is cast. I think they've made a decision that they're going to go in that direction. 
and the $11 million was floated uh, as they were making that decision as well. Uh, but council, you see, council is anxious to make sure that there are no political fingerprints on this and that, that it's totally transparent so nobody can say, ah, oh, yes, but you're still hiding stuff. I get that. I get that there is some political accountability that always comes with any kind of decision-making. But in this case, the truth and making sure that, that you know, if there are errors that are not repeated uh, is very valuable, a, even more valuable than some political criticism that may come your way. And fiscal responsibility certainly should be part of that as well. I talked a lot to Hamiltonians, Bill, and and they are concerned about this. And you know, there's as a, they should be, as they should be, and 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 they are. And there's a variance uh, of opinion. Uh, you know, some talk about speeding, some talk about uh, weather, some talk about maybe the faulty asphalt, and 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 all uh, kinds of explanations are given as to uh, what happened and why it happened. But I don't see, I don't hear, uh, uh, I mean, I hear some, but I don't hear a lot of people clamoring for the most expensive way to talk to a couple of people to find out what happened. Is it and just a couple of people? See, this, I, I've got a lot of questions about this, and, and yeah. I want to, let me tap into your experience, Larry. You spent years, of course, in municipal government uh, at Stony Creek and, of course, after amalgamation for the city. Uh, but and, and you've seen how administrations are supposed to work. Uh, there's something about the explanation as to what happened over these last four or five years that really just doesn't pass the smell test. And I, I think that's got a lot of people feeling uneasy uh, to the point where, without trying to go down the road of conspiracy theories, is there, are they doing this with other stuff too? I mean, you know, is there no communication or there's a lack of communication? Why wasn't this brought forward? Who saw it? Who had eyes on this? Uh, did any? I, I, I mean, you know, and I'm hearing some of the same stuff when I talk to people in this community too, Larry. And, like, yeah, I, like some of them are disbelieving in the fact that nobody on city council or any elected official didn't know about this at one point. Uh, or did this a staff member or staff members do this on an arbitrary manner? We don't know yet. Well, and and those are all good questions, and and they should be answered. Uh, and uh, and I think that there's a quicker uh, and more efficient and certainly just as thorough but less costly way of doing it than uh, than a, a public inquiry with a, an eleven potentially an eleven million dollar price tag. And that's all I'm saying. And and you can get you can hire people to do a thorough independent investigation, and then we will judge um, what is being said by the quality of that investigation. And if more needs to be done, if it, I mean if if there seems to be this uh, this this um, um, avalanche of people who knew about this and somehow. We're not uh, we're not uh, acting responsibly. Then that needs to come out as well. I don't see that, however. I, I just don't. And, and based on my experience, you know, obviously, I have uh, I have uh, not a vested interest in this any longer. Certainly politically, um, I'm just a, a, a taxpayer like you are and uh, our listeners are. And I want to see council do the right thing, but I don't want to see them throw money away to essentially prove to the public that the politicians were not involved in whatever decisions were made. A, I do not believe that they were involved. I don't think politicians um, certainly uh, knew about this report. I, I, I take uh, that uh, fact uh, on uh, at, at face value that the politicians were not involved. And knowing how it works, you know, reports are written all the time. And council sees reports written by staff. They very seldom see directly reports written by consultants. And so somehow someone on staff saw that report and either didn't give it the attention it deserved, or maybe they did. Maybe they did do some due diligence based on the facts that the uh, reports said, have another look. Maybe they did, and we'll find that out as well. But do we need to have a, a you know, a, a stream of, of, uh, of uh, lawyers and judges and everybody's going to lawyer up to, to really essentially talk to very few people who had direct hands-on uh, uh, knowledge or... Uh, they they had direct application to to this particular issue because the department um, of of public works, which was in charge of of these works, uh, had uh, you know uh, some a few people who who uh, would have had responsibility there. And it's a question of starting there and seeing what they have to say, and then if it needs to go further, whoever is hired to do this, whether it's an ombudsman uh, or or uh, um, our, our, the internal auditor. 
uh, can can make a decision as to whether this is bigger, needs uh, more information and uh, the involvement of more people or not. I just don't see it. You know, this is not a gomery inquiry with so many tentacles. I mean, there's a very direct line between a report that was given, who saw it, and what decisions were made based on that report. Well, and I, I, I and and that's that's all very germane to this discussion. Uh, I've got concern about the price as well. I mean, I want this thing done thoroughly, and I want it done properly. Uh, and there's been a great big push for judicial, uh, and that may be the better and the most efficient way. But I'm questioning the price tag on this. I mean, they got that from staff information, and I understand at this point it's only an estimate. But if it's as you articulated here, Larry, that there's only a few people that really need to be uh, uh, talked to here, uh, I, I can't see why you're going to have to pay seven to eleven million dollars for that. That doesn't. Well, yeah. Uh, it, uh, and and uh, I'm the skeptic in me is saying, well, did they inflate that price to try to scare council away from doing something like this? I don't know. Oh well, I would hope not. I mean, that does take us down the road of, of uh, conspiracy theories, and and if that's the case, then uh, you know, really shame on them. Uh, I just don't do not see that at all. But you know how bureaucracy work, uh, Bill. Uh, they will they feed on themselves and they grow, and uh, and they're going to have to hire. Uh, staff and lawyers, and uh, they're going to have to find a judge, and it's going to take maybe a year or two years. And I get the fact that council wants to tell the public that, look, we we want this done right, and we want this done openly and transparently uh, and thoroughly so that we get the answers that uh, will then direct uh, future behavior so that this doesn't happen again and we fix things. But, um, but that can be done in a way, I think, that because of the narrow scope of this, I mean, we're essentially talking about um, uh, asphalt uh, on a road and one report that went to, you know, and some names have been bandied about, and you know some of these people, as I do, Bill, Mm -hmm. we've worked with them, uh, whose names have been bandied about, we know who they are that saw the report. What did you do with the report? Did you take some action? Show us what you did. Is there a paper trail? Is there another report? Is there some study that was done? Uh, are the, the province themselves, they did uh, similar studies on the asphalt on this road. What do those studies say? And, and come to some conclusions. I think this can be done relatively efficiently, quickly, thoroughly, and transparently as well, because then it, uh, it'll be given to the public and the public will decide uh, whether there's merit in what's being said or not. And if there isn't, then council always has the cho- choice to bump this up. But to start at the highest, most expensive level, to talk to a relatively uh, telescope number of people, uh, I just think is is overkill. Well, that's got to be part of the discussion today as to how they're going to do this and what are the parameters going to be. Uh, I'm a little uncomfortable with council even setting the parameters on this, too, because, I, you know, I, I, I would think that if we want to get every answer here and we want to get some, some uh, confidence regaining here, I, I think what you've got to do is turn over every rock that you can, and if it leads you down another road, well, maybe you should go there, too. Uh, I don't want to get to turn into the Ken Starr inquiry. You know, that's going to go on and cost millions of dollars. We don't want to go there. Yeah, or the Robert Mueller. You know, we're talking uh, we're talking different uh, different issues, obviously. But uh, but that's exactly the point. I mean, and some of that stuff has already been done. I mean, I, I'm sure you saw the piece on the paper the other day from Nicole O'Reilly. Uh, yes. With the email chains, and 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 yes. that that shed a little more light on this. That apparently there were you know there were conflicting reports on this, well, uh, and and they'd use different criteria to establish their numbers, and and so exactly. it, it's kind of inside baseball stuff. I get that, but at the same time, even with that information, my question initially is: Well, okay, when you saw differing results like this, should you not have brought that to somebody's attention? And did they? And did somebody else say, ah, "Don't worry about it"? I, well, and that's and that's exactly the point. And I think at the end of the day, that's exactly what happened, that there was some conflicting information and somebody made a judgment call. And now because of the awful, awful uh, events of people actually losing their lives, it's 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 and, and, and the report not having seen the light of day uh, that people are, are, are having the discussion that we're having right now. And so that needs to be gotten to the bottom of, quite frankly. Uh, but it could be as simple as that, or maybe there there is something to the you know the quality of the asphalt that was used and 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 so on. But but the other thing that that I think we need to understand, Bill, is that the fix for the problem has already been decided by council. So nothing that will be done in this report will have them do anything different but what they're doing. They're resurfacing the whole roadway. So the problem 
if there was a problem, will go away because now they're going to use a material that, that hopefully will be better tested and so on. So what we want to do is find out now why did a report that asked people to look at things again not see the light of day, if indeed it didn't? Or if it did, what was done about it? And this is where the conflicting information comes in. But to raise that to the level of a judicial um, inquiry uh, that's going to cost up to $11 million, um, again, I, I, you know, counsel will do what counsel will do, and I suspect this is what they're going to do. But it just, uh, to me, seems um, like, a, a, you know, a, an expense that, that could, can be avoided while getting the results we want. By the way, we're just getting information as uh, they're talking about this at City Hall today, Larry, that uh, uh, the outside legal counsel, I guess, that's doing some work on this, is suggesting that this inquiry uh, could cost or could take about a year and a half, uh, which I guess that kind of answers my question about how why it's going to cost so much. So yeah. it, it's it, I don't know exactly what the scope is going to be or who they're going to do or, or how they're going to spend $11 million or seven or whatever it's going to be. I don't know why it should take a year and a half for that matter either, unless we're going to get all the way back and talk about how the road was built, you know, the design and oh everything. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you that's, know. Then that, you and I will be called to testify as well. Well, I guess, because, uh, uh, because I mean, you, excuse the bad pun, but, I mean, do we want to go down that road? Or is this really about how staff do their jobs or not do their jobs, as the case might be? And and I see your point. I mean, you know, the one question I think that we haven't talked about yet, and we need to, and I think you just touched on it a little bit, is what's the end game here? I mean, what are they going to be looking for is it is it to apportion blame or is it maybe to exonerate somebody? I don't know what's going to be in the report. At, at, you know when all is said and done here, but yeah, how is council a year and a half from now? How is this council going to deal with whatever information they get? Yes, and I think that there are probably different uh, motivations for that. Um, uh, hopefully, everybody will agree that the biggest uh, uh, motivation is to if there are errors in either reporting or how reports are dealt with or communications. Uh, so that these things do not happen again. I, I hope everybody can agree that that should be an outcome. Uh, but from a council perspective, they want to show that they had nothing to do with this and, and uh, that there are no political fingerprints on this whatsoever. Uh, from a staff perspective, uh, staff is, is also interested in you know, the chain of command and, and the communications and who makes decisions and how are those communicated uh, to the various players as well. So there's lots of uh, interest in this. Um, and, and however, the, the, the fix, as I say, to the problem has already been decided. The road's being resurfaced. So I can't see that this report will lead to any other conclusion, practical conclusion on, on what to do with, with the roadway because they've already done what they're going to do. Some of the councillors have actually gone so far as to say that they've lost some faith in, in st- city staff because of this, because they, not not just because somebody may have mishandled this initial information, but the fact that in spite of the fact that somebody knew of this information, they consistently told council just the opposite of what this report said. Well, and that is troubling, right? Because those questions were asked by uh, councillors of staff, and staff essentially gave some answers that. Uh, on the face of it, seem to, at the very best, be misleading and maybe, uh, maybe worse than that. Uh, but does that speak to, um, to, to a conspiracy or does that speak to judgment? And somebody made a judgment. And, and, and we need to understand um, on what was that different judgment based. In other words, if you got a report from a consultant saying, have another look at this, uh, maybe they did. Maybe staff did have another look. And, uh, and responded because they had some conflicting information that showed that everything was okay. Remember, the province also looked at this road because this road was subsidized by the local taxpayers as well as provincial money, and the province never raised any alarm bells either. So what, is it a question of, of, of faulty material? Is it a question of design? Is it a question of speed? Is it, you know, what are all the variables that come into accidents that will occur? Uh, those all need to be considered. And at the end of the day, will a judicial inquiry that's going to take a year and a half and cost $11 million give us any clearer answer than someone who is competent to do a thorough investigation in much quicker time uh, be able to provide? I, I you know, if I was making the call on this, in spite of the fact that there would be some political heat, 
I would uh, I would do the quicker, less expensive, and most thorough investigation. Well, we're right. we're monitoring things at City Hall, and we'll pass this information on as soon as we get it. Larry, thanks as always for your insight into this. Appreciate the time today. Very good. Okay, take care. You bet. Former Hilton Mayor Larry Diani. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We could be heading down a confrontational road with uh, Ontario secondary school teachers and uh, the Premier, of course, and uh, the province of Ontario. Uh, simply because of some of the uh, programs that uh, the Premier is trying to enact right now, what he calls uh, under the guise of education reform. You may remember during the campaign when he talked about trying to find $6 billion in efficiencies that he said that nobody will lose their job. Well, uh, I'd like to ask some of the teachers how they feel about that because we've had discussions over the last couple of days here on the program with, uh, well, both boards of education here in the Hamilton area, the Catholic Board and the Public Board, uh, both have had to send notices out now to secondary school teachers uh, basically saying that they are quote-unquote surplus, basically which means that your job is being eliminated and uh, you may not be working uh, as of September. That's, in my mind, kind of like losing your job. Not sure what the definition would be from uh, the, the, the Premier at this point. Uh, but the Premier also had some words to say, by the way, since we are heading towards contract negotiations, uh, about the attitude the teachers should actually have because, well, as he says, they've got it pretty good. They have a great gig, if you want to call it. They do a great job, by the way, and I appreciate all the teachers. But guys, don't 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 pull the straight nonsense on 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 the parents and on the poor students. Uh, well, we'll see if that's going to be the guiding uh, thought of, of, during the contract negotiations, uh, especially in light of some of the things that the boards are having to do. I know the Peel Board and many other boards have had to make similar decisions as the Catholic and uh, Public Board here in the Hamilton area. Joining us to talk about this is Harvey Bischoff. Harvey is the uh, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Harvey, thank you for joining us. Good to have you back on the program today. Morning, Bill. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about. We'll get into the contract stuff and, and the premier's comments in a second. Uh, but uh, an awful lot of parents I've talked to uh, are distressed about what's happening here. But uh, and we had Manny Figueroa, who was the uh, director of education for the Catholic, or the Hamilton Board here. Uh, there's about 80 uh, people that are going to be given these uh, what they call surplus notices right now. Most of them are secondary school teacher federations. How do you, how do you respond to it? What's going on? Well. Clearly, that uh, what we're starting to see is exactly the program that this government wants to enact, which is that they want to take one out of four high school teachers out of out of Ontario's secondary school system. So, a quarter of the teachers lost, um, a quarter of the classes that they teach will be lost. Um, kids will have fewer uh, options to choose from, and they will they will be in overcrowded classes. A quarter of the extracurricular programming that uh, that you know, so many educators volunteer to provide. Those That'll be lost as well. Um, so this is the government's plan. You're seeing it come home to roost uh, now, and you're seeing that their claims of no job losses are um, just more smoke and mirrors. Harvey, there's, a, there's another element. I just want to peel back. I know you're aware of this, but for the sake of our listeners, uh, these 80 positions with the uh, the public board here in Hamilton, uh, we mentioned most of them are secondary school teachers. Uh, so they're, they're in some places, the cost is consultants, but they are still teachers, uh, and they, they actually have expertise in things like math, literacy, and special education, which are some of the challenges within the, the education system here in this province of Ontario. So they're part of the solution, not part of the problem here, and they're the ones that seem to be getting the heave-ho. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll describe some of these people as, uh, when, when, you know, master teachers is not a bad way to describe them. So they have expertise in a particular area, be it math instruction, an area that the premier claims he wants to improve um, and, in fact, is going to damage this kind of move. Um, you know, technology is changing all the time. And we have uh, teachers who are experts in the implementation of technology who can assist um, other teachers in their classroom in, in, in using that. Um, we, you know, the, the, the school system has changed. The students that we teach are um, much more diverse now. Um, there is, uh, we include in regular classrooms many more kids with different kinds of needs. There are experts who can assist teachers in making sure that their instruction is best suited to all the kids in their class. Um, and so those, you know, the loss of those sorts of members is going to have uh, a, a significant negative impact on the school system, too. Well, because it seems to be counterproductive to what the Premier said his goals were in a situation like this. And, and just from a, a practical standpoint, Harvey, if you're going to increase class sizes, and we know that's going to happen, and it's not going to be just by one student or two, as, as some people are, are speculating, 
you would think that the the teacher, whichever teachers are left, I guess, are going to need more help, uh, and, and so are some of the students, obviously, that, that you know, may fall behind. That's exactly what those positions were created for in the first place. They absolutely, they assist with that, and, and you couldn't be more right that um, more help is needed to provide students with the kind of uh, attention and support that they need in order to succeed. Um, when, especially when our classrooms are more diverse, you need to have multiple ways of assisting um, kids with, uh, with their instruction, uh, with their learning. Um, so taking those, those experts, those master teachers out is problematic. But, you know, along with that, hasn't been talked about very much, is a threat to the support staff who currently um, do such excellent work in our classrooms, um, helping kids who need the additional supports. Those jobs are under threat, too, um, and that means that kids are going to go without the attention, the professional, caring attention that they're getting right now. That's raised our graduation rates into the, into the mid-80%, um, you know, so, so in Ontario, uh, 85-86% of all high school students end up with a diploma. Um, we're going to go back to the, you know, the sort of the, at least 20% lower graduation rates that we had the last time the Conservatives were in power. Is, is, is it your feeling that the government seems to be indicating or going on along on, the, on the, the thought process here that this education system in Ontario is broken? I've heard both the minister and the premier use those exact words on a number of occasions, and I'm, I'm shocked that they would speak that way for a couple of reasons. They should not see their job as being to decrease the, the public's confidence in uh, the public education system. But on top of that, uh, just about every metric you look at, every measurement that's used tells us that we have one of the top education systems in the world. Um, most recently just ranked top six in the world again um, when you add up all of Ontario's uh, you know various ways of measuring Ontario's student success as I mentioned our graduation rates over over 16 years or so have gone up by 20 percent standardized test scores leaving one aside which is grade six, six math standardized test scores have increased significantly over the last 15 16 years to point to Ontario's education system and to say it's broken does such a disservice um, to the excellent work that's being done and to the high quality of Ontario's graduates who go on um, in, in ever-increasing numbers to post-secondary. Um, we have the highest number of post-secondary graduates in the, uh, in the OECD. Um, and those are people who are prepared to take on the challenges of work um, in, in, the 20, you know, in 2020 and beyond. Um, cutting back on that is not going to serve Ontario's economy. It's not going to serve Ontario's businesses who are looking for high-quality graduates. Um, it's just it's going to it's going to send our our economic prosperity downward rather than upward. Fifteen years ago, as we're sitting in this chair, we were having a discussion about the alarmingly low graduation rates uh, here in Ontario from high school students and the number of people that were dropping out. Frankly. Uh, there have been, as we've talked about in, in that period of time, some some government initiatives. The numbers are much, much better right now. That That's really the end game here, isn't it, Harvey, to, to graduate students and, and have them move on to post-secondary or into the workforce? I'd say you want to do two things. You want to graduate more students, and you want to make sure that those students are graduating with the skills and knowledge that they need. Um, our graduation rates show us that we've got the first part of that equation right, um, but our standardized test scores compared to other students all around the world tell us that we have the second part of that equation right as well. And what that means is if you're a business in Ontario, you can compete on the basis of having the most highly skilled, most knowledgeable, most capable workers, um, rather than trying to be, uh, you know, the, the, the cheapest provider of some, of some good or service. Um, we should be aiming high. We should be aiming for that sort of um, high knowledge, uh, high skill economy. That's what we're in the process of accomplishing right now. And this government wants to turn back the clock. They've got this kind of uh, industrial revolution era vision of education that has kids stacked into classes, that has kids have access to far fewer programs that they, than they have right now, access to the arts program, the technology program that's going to send them off to the future that they choose for themselves. 
So we've got a government that's, that's like I say, they're just trying to turn back the clock, and it's it's counterproductive. i got to ask you to comment on something else, and it was another comment the Premier made a couple of days ago when he was having one of his media scrums, uh, and they brought up this whole idea. We just played a clip a minute ago, a bit on top ago, about a potential strike uh, and, and, and saying don't go down that road. Uh, but he suggested that he's talked to, I think the phrase he used was hundreds of teachers in the last little while, and said they all support what he's doing. They they like to hear these reforms, and they don't listen to the union leadership. Is that the kind of feedback you're getting? It's the exact opposite to the feedback I'm getting, but it's the, the Premier, uh, the Minister both have been making these, these claims. They try to um, tell the public that there's a difference between um, the messages that people like me are giving uh, as opposed to my membership. And the fact is, I'm representing the voice of my members. I'm saying what they want me to say, which is that they're desperately concerned about about the education system. But, you know, even on top of that, it's more than anything, it's a distraction. What the Premier doesn't want to talk about is larger class sizes, less uh, fewer, fewer choices for students, um, students being forced into mandatory e-learning. He knows that those are not uh, that those are not policy proposals that the public likes. So he wants to focus on on conflict and and you know make outrageous claims um, that that whip up uh, concern and so forth. It's it's fear mongering. It's it's counterproductive. Why don't we focus on the education policy? What's this going to do? I mean, at some point you're going to have to sit across the table from from the ministry and, and you've got to hammer something out. Uh, I, despite what the Premier is saying here, Harvey, i got to feel that, that this policy, which is essentially not just eliminating jobs, but, you know, getting people fired, I mean, you know, laid off, pink slip, call it whatever phrase you want, uh, surplus, you, the phrase is, if they, if they tell you you're not working in September anymore, you're out of a job, that, that's got to be a factor in the discussions, doesn't it? Well, ab- absolutely. So I can I can tell you um, that we will bring forward proposals that are good for Ontario students, good for Ontario's future economic prosperity, um, and we will hope that the ministry people sitting across the table from us um, come with an open mind um, and a willingness to entertain proposals that are that are in fact good for the province and good for our kids. Uh, that's our intention. We'll have to see what intention they bring to that bargaining table. But I know that we will um, be able to say uh, very sincerely, look, what we're putting on the table is is good for Ontario students, and we think the public will, will support those proposals. Well, you heard his comment from a couple of minutes ago there at the beginning of our discussion here, suggesting that if, uh, if strike action is even considered, let alone uh, enacted, uh, that it's uh, it's it's the teachers being unfair to the students and 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 to the parents. Uh, it's kind of ironic he used that perspective because it was two years ago or two weeks ago, I guess, that he accused uh, you and the other secondary school teachers of organizing the student walkout and the student protests. So I, I'm not quite sure. Are you, are you guys friends or foes? I'm not sure. I, I guess it changes with uh, it depends on who is asking him a question at the time. You know, the, the, the premier wants to talk about strikes because he doesn't want to talk about increasing class size. He's, he's the one out there uh, spreading that fear. Um, we gathered tens of thousands of educators, parents, grandparents, interested people, you know, people who have, a, have an interest in public education on the lawn of Queen's Park. We gathered them a couple of weeks ago and they talked about education policy and what's good for kids. We didn't get together and talk about strike. That's the premier who's doing that. Let's let's go back to what really matters for kids in our system and how we can help them achieve uh, success in their futures. We saw what happened in the uh, late 1990s uh, under the Harris government and uh, a rather acrimonious relationship between teachers and, and that government. Are we heading down that same road? We'll do everything we can to to avoid it. Um, you know, we're we're going to, uh, as I said, we'll put proposals on the table that uh, that are good for kids. Um, but the, the you know the potential for conflict is real. Um, I think that the the blame for that potential should lie where it belongs with this government that's trying to raise fears and uh, and and raise concerns. Um, that's that's not our intention. Um, you know, we we want to continue to. Ha- uh, build the excellent education system that we have currently. That's where our focus is going to be. But I, I don't want to see the, the the battle lines being drawn here. I have this comment about teachers. Uh, you know, they got a good gig apparently, according to what the premier says, uh, saying that you know you got uh, three months of holidays, the best benefit package, and the best pensions in the country. 
Uh, your pension plan is well managed, but I mean that's that's to your credit. That's that's not something that you guys were awarded necessarily in a contract. And I don't know too many teachers that take three months off. Harvey, do you? I actually don't because there's there is so much work to be done um, during those times. But you know, I'd say that I said it again. He the, the premier wants to talk about those things and wants to try to create envy and divide um, divide the public up into little factions because that serves his purposes. Um, but what serves the purposes of Ontario's future? And I would say that's having kids who are have the opportunity to get the attention they need to be well educated to contribute to Ontario's economy in Ontario's civic life uh, in the future um, and his, you know, his uh, efforts to, to whip up divisions, um, they, they don't help the province. I mean, we've talked about the impact this is having, and, and I'm, I'm scratching my head like a lot of other people are, as to why secondary school teachers uh, and special positions seem to be the focus of, of a lot of these cuts, and that's what these really are. We haven't even talked about the support staff here yet. Uh, education assistants that I have talked to and that have emailed me in the last couple of days are very concerned. And again, those are the ones that are addressing uh, those that are, are in most need of, of extra help in the, in, within the school system right now, and they seem to be on, on the firing line as well. And, and we are deeply concerned about that. What we haven't been able to do is to nail down with any certainty what those potential job losses will look like. And that's because, you know, the, the ministry made an announcement uh, a full month ago about cuts. They still haven't released the technical papers that would explain what those cuts truly mean. We have to ask ourselves, what are they hiding that a month later they haven't been able to produce um, the underlying explanations for where they're going? I just sent the minister another letter yesterday saying, give us the information. Let us understand what it is um, that that these cuts will lead to. Um, I'm, you know, I, I'm not terribly hopeful that I'll get a response soon. Um, but it's very evident that this government is hiding the real numbers because they don't want anybody to understand what the outcome of their policies will be. It seems to me as if uh, the boards across the province, at least the ones we've talked to uh, in, in Halton and, of course, here in the Hamilton area, uh, seem to be of one mind with the, with the teachers on this about the, what the cuts are going to do and the impact they could have on students. So uh, and quite a few boards have now spoken out, and we've seen it from Peel and Durham uh, and, and uh, you know, the ones you mentioned and others. I haven't yet seen a single board stand up and say, we think what the government is proposing is good for the education system, is good for students. Um, uh, everyone, uh, not all have spoken out yet, but everyone that has has pointed exactly to the problems that we're pointing out, overcrowded classes, loss of program choice. Um, and, and so when you're hearing it from, you know, what are sometimes considered two different sides of, uh, of the argument, uh, the union and, and the employer, um, we are, we are uh, very much in agreement that these are proposals that aren't good for kids. Harvey, thank you for uh, all the time today and uh, for your explanation on this. Uh, we're uh, nowhere near the end of this, obviously, so I'm sure we'll talk again. Appreciate the time today, though. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Harvey Bishop, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, you got kids or grandkids in school, whatever the case might be, talk to them about it and talk to the, teacher, to the teachers about this. It's, a, it's a, a, major, a major concern, really, about quality of education and the impact that this is going to have. And I, I get that. Every government wants to try to, you know, keep costs down, but... Uh, education and health care are your number one priorities. You tell us that every time. Uh, you tell politicians that every time when there's an election. And you have to wonder, just are these cuts the best thing for this system? The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.